Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for another Lord's Day to come together, gather with Your people, and to study Your Word. It's Your revelation to us. You meant it to be understood. And You meant it to sanctify us and to help us to grow. Help us to be encouraged today by Your Word. Help us to study Your Word in truth. And uh, be with us in our time together. May Your Holy Spirit be upon us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a while. Um, I had gotten sick for a little bit and was out and trying to recover and catch back up with things. Um, but we're back to our study on the doctrines of grace. And if you've been counting, we're done four and we are on the last one. Um, but let's review, since it's, especially since it's been a while, um, let's review. So I put it in your notes. If you don't have one, Wade has them in the back. Um, but we're going to we'll go through them again briefly, uh, covering each one. Um, the most important one to understand is total depravity. So I put the definition in there. We've gone over it every time because um, it's really important to understand, and I'll talk more about that later. But uh, total depravity is because of man's because of Adam's fall, man is born not merely wounded but radically depraved and spiritually dead. In man's natural state, he is absolutely unable to affect his own salvation. In this condition, man is a slave to sin and hostile to God, having neither the ability nor the desire to repent and turn to him. And our main passage for that is Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good, not even one. And I continue to remind you of our lesson on total depravity because all the other four doctrines hinge on total depravity. When you get this doctrine right, all of the other four fall into place. And you really don't have any choice but to accept the other four when you get this one right. When you really understand man's condition and how unable and how depraved man is then there is no choice but for God to elect you, God to save you, God to draw you in with his irresistible grace, and God to hold you in his almighty, all-powerful hand. So after total depravity, that brings us to election. God decided to choose for himself certain individuals to be his elect people. These chosen ones God gave to Christ in order to be redeemed. They were not chosen due to any foreseen merit on their part, but entirely out of God's sovereign will, good purpose, and glory. And my favorite verse for that is John 15:16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Couldn't get much clearer than that. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you would go and bear fruit. And Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God of our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. And that brings us to be irresistible grace. So we're chosen, and after chosen, 
God irresistibly draws us in. Irresistible grace is the Holy Spirit extends an irresistible call, bringing a person inevitably to faith in Christ. The Spirit creates a new heart and a new nature in the dead sinner through regeneration. This supernatural call cannot be ultimately thwarted and will not be resisted by the sinner, who, as a result of it, freely, willingly, and lovingly turns to Christ as Lord and Savior. John 6:44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6:65. And Jesus was saying, For this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In Romans 11:25, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's the best verse for irresistible grace. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the doctrine of irrevocable gifts. The gifts of God are irrevocable. And then perseverance of the saints. So if you're elected and God draws you in, it wasn't your choice to begin with. It's not your choice to stay. Right? It is God who holds you. Perseverance of the saints. All those who have truly answered God's call and have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will remain so for the rest of their lives. Those who do not remain so were never effectually called to begin with. Thus, the regenerated, elected Christian can have confidence and assurance knowing that he is being kept by the sovereign power and faithfulness of God. And again, to support this, you can go right back to Romans 11. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The elect cannot fall away because it is God who keeps them. Right? If we understand total depravity correctly, we understand that man always, in his sinful nature, will rebel against God. If God didn't preserve man's faith, then man would always fall away. It's as simple as that. Salvation is all of God, and so the believer's perseverance is also all of God. If it was up to us, if it was up to me, I would fall away. Right? It's God who called us. It is God who keeps us. Jude, 4, or Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority be all, before all time, now and forever. Amen. You can't gain salvation by an act of your own will, neither can you keep your salvation by an act of your own will. It is God who keeps you. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence and glory. And then John 6. Um, why don't you turn there? We're going to come back to this later. Um, let's turn in your Bibles to John 6. We're still in review of perseverance of the saints, but it applies to the next doctrine we're going to cover. And when I went through perseverance of the saints, I had so many verses, we skimmed through and passed over quite a few of them. So I'm going to cover a few extra today in our review. Just because this is a really glorious doctrine, and it's great to be reminded of it and to remember it. And the verses here are wonderful, so why not go over them again? John 6, we're going to start in verse 37. Actually, if, we can, uh, if you can, Cliff Montre, can you read John 6, verses 37 through 40?
All that belong to Jesus. All that... It says, now this is the will of Him who sent me, that all He has given me, I lose nothing. All whom Jesus came to save, He loses none. But He will raise them up on the last day. And that is the will of the Father. And then John 10. Turn over a couple a couple chapters to John chapter 10. This is also important to today's lesson, both to Pierce Perseverance of the Saints and to our lesson today. John 10, verse 26 through 29. John 10, 26 through 29. Dale, do you have that for us? Another verse. No, no problem. No one, nothing, is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. We remind, we remind of Romans 8, right? Um, In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Amen. Ephesians 4, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Sealed for the day of redemption. Philippians 1, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. Uh, 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they were were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they are not of us. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen. Keep your finger on John 10. We're going to come back to that. (laughs) But we're going to have a a little bit of time before we come back to John 10. So today's lesson is on limited atonement, as some of you know it. I like the term particular redemption, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Um, But limited atonement, some people call it actual atonement. Um, I'm indebted to John MacArthur on this topic. I've studied his couple sermons on this a lot. And um, so a lot of this information, that's where it came from. Um, But he uses the term actual atonement, and you'll understand why here in a little bit. But first, let me give you a little prelude to this. This doctrine answers the question, for whom did Christ die? Or more specifically, who has Christ's atonement been applied to? But before we look at that, let me remind you of the Westminster Confession of Faith says in chapter 1. I'll just read it to you. Chapter 1, part 5. 
of Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Focus on that phrase there. It's either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Okay? Think about what they're saying there. Some doctrines are obvious. Some doctrines are de- derived more by good and necessary consequence from Scripture than others. Do you see that? Not every doctrine in, revealed in Scripture is, is as expressly set down as others. Some, you have to do some deduction. You have to do some logic to get there. doesn't make them any less important or any less true. It's just not as obvious. So by good and necessary consequence and by deduction, you come to the conclusion of those doctrines. The one that I've always heard this with is with the Trinity, right? There's no place that explains the Trinity in detail in Scripture. No one place. But you take verses, you put them together, do a little deduction, a little logic, and you come to the Trinity fairly easily, right? So the first part of our study today is going to focus more on logical deduction from things we already know well in Scripture. Then we'll go back and we'll look at some verses in detail. So which means you're going to have to pay attention. (laughs) But if I lose you in my reasoning somewhere along the way, which of course is possible, um, stop me and ask, and I will do my best to explain in more detail uh, as we go. Okay, limited atonement defined. Christ's atonement does not apply to every person, but only to the elect. The atonement is the work of Christ on the cross, whereby he paid the debt of our sin, appeased God's holy wrath against us, and purchased for the elect all the benefits of salvation. Okay, Let me read that again. Christ's atonement doesn't apply to every person, but only to the elect. The atonement we're talking about is the work of Christ on the cross, whereby he paid the debt of our sin, he appeased God's holy wrath against us, and purchased for the elect all the benefits of salvation. Um, I had actually was going to do this lesson last week, but then Dan needed to go to Florida this week, so he needed me to take this week, so we swapped. Um, but I put the children's catechism in here because the young people were supposed to be, because they were going to be up here last week. They're not this week, but some of the young people will know the, the children's catechism, at least my children will, so when I ask them these questions, they're supposed to know the answer. But I put it in here instead of the London Baptist, just that's why. Um, so question 51 of the children's catechism said, For whom did Christ obey and suffer? And the answer is, For all whom God the Father gave to Christ. Okay. Whom did Christ obey and suffer for? For all whom God the Father gave to Christ. Question 54 says, What is meant by the atonement? And the answer is, Christ satisfied God's justice by suffering and death as a substitute for sinners. What is meant by atonement? Christ satisfied God's justice. That's the thing I want you to focus on. The atonement means God Justice was satisfied by Christ on the cross. You guys know the word for that, right? Propitiation. We're going to talk about that a bunch. Propitiation. That's 
Christ is satisfying God's wrath. Christ satisfying God's justice. And then question 55 of the Children's Catechism, Catechism asks, What does God the Father guarantee in the covenant of grace? The answer is to justify and sanctify all those for whom Christ died. What does God the Father guarantee in the covenant of grace, the new covenant, the new and better covenant? What does God guarantee? To justify and sanctify all those for whom Christ died. If Christ died for them, they will be justified and they will be sanctified. Very important. Okay, so now let's talk about the contrary doctrine to limited atonement or unlimited atonement, as it's put. Unlimited atonement states, uh, states that Christ died for everyone, for every single individual that ever lived. If you ask most Christians today, who did Christ die for? Most people will tell you, Jesus died for everybody, right? And they're saying Jesus died for every singular individual that ever lived. But can that be true? Is it possible for Christ to have died for everyone who has ever lived? That's the question we're going to answer right now. Now, if that is true that Christ died for everyone, that begs the question. How then does anybody go to hell? If Christ died for everybody the same, how does anybody end up in hell? Now, I'm not going to cover that people go to heaven and people go to hell again. We covered that once. Okay? It's clear in Scripture. It's absolutely obvious. Some people will be glorified and spend eternity in heaven, and some people won't. So let me put the question another way. Can Christ have died for those who are going to hell? That's another way to put it. If you ask the question, who did Christ die for? Oh, Christ died for everybody. Sounds obvious or simple enough, right? Sounds benign enough. But when you turn it around a little bit and you ask, can Christ die for those who are going to hell? Well, now that makes a little more sense. Now it gets a little more tricky. We know that some are elect and some are going to heaven and others are doomed to spend eternity in hell. We covered that previously. But can Christ's atonement be applied to those who will spend eternity in hell? So unlimited atonement claims that Christ died for everybody the same. Now some people are going to heaven and some people are going to hell, which the people who claim unlimited atonement will agree with. Then there has to be something to differentiate between those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell. Christ's atonement can't apply to both groups the same, those who are saved and those who aren't. So then how does anybody differentiate between those who are going to heaven and those who are going to hell? The difference, as some would put it, is that the elect, or the believers, have accepted Christ, and the soul, when accepting Christ, they somehow activated the atonement for themselves, while others, when they reject Christ, the atonement doesn't apply to them. Now, I'm going to stop here, make sure you all are following me and you all understand. You don't have to agree. (laughs) Just understand. So what they're saying is, is there's the believer and the unbeliever. Christ died for both, is what they're claiming. The believer, the atonement applies to them because they accepted Christ, but the atonement doesn't apply to the unbeliever because they didn't accept Christ and they rejected him. 
But Christ died for both. That's the claim. It's like they're saying, what the way they put it is, they say, God has given both groups the gift of salvation, but one group accepted it, and the other person didn't. Make sense? Follow me so far? Okay. Now, we're going to cover some problems with this view. Now, when I first um, set out for this lesson, um, I thought, oh, this will be easy. It's fairly clear. I'll just blow right through it. And we'll have plenty of time. But the more I studied this, the more serious I understood that these errors were. There's a lot of people who claim to be four-point Calvinists, and they reject one doctrine out of the five, and this is the one they usually reject. As studying this more and going over this, now this is, I've gone over doctrines of grace at least three, three or four times I've gone over this and, and taught it. But this time, this one really hit me how serious this error of unlimited atonement really is. So I'm going to cover these errors in detail. The previous lessons, I just focused on the doctrine itself. Tried to encourage you. Pretty simple. But this, the, the error here is serious. Uh, and I think it's bad enough, it justifies covering. So I put four points in here, four, er- four errors, four serious problems with this doctrine. The first is fairly simple, okay? How can Christ have died for the sins of someone, and yet at the same time the atonement isn't applicable to them? If the atonement doesn't apply to someone because they have rejected Christ, then their sins haven't been paid for, which means the atonement hasn't happened to them. Or hasn't been applied to them. If their sins aren't paid for, then Christ didn't actually die for their sins. Obviously, if Christ didn't die for their sins, then Christ didn't die for everyone. Okay? So here, let me explain that again to you. Let's go back to the unbeliever. The unbeliever. And you ask somebody who claims unlimited atonement. Did Christ die for the unbeliever? Did Christ die for this person? They say, yes, Christ died for them. All right. But they rejected Christ, right? They rejected Christ, right? So they're not going to heaven, no. Okay, so if Christ died for them and they're not going to heaven because they didn't accept Christ, yes. Okay. Okay. Then the atonement didn't apply to them, right? Right. Atonement doesn't apply, right? Then they're going to he- then they're going to hell to pay for their sins. Then their sins aren't paid for, right? Correct. Well, then Christ didn't actually die for them, right? Did Christ die for their sins or did he not? If he died for their sins then there's no sins to be paid for. They have to go to heaven. If Christ didn't die for their sins, then they have to pay for their own sins as hell. There's one or the other. It can't be both. Okay, this is logic, right? This is logic 101. It can't be A and not A at the same time and in the same sense, right? Christ can't have died for somebody, and yet at the same time they have to pay for their sins. If Christ died for them, then their sins are paid for. They're either paid for or they're not, right? If their sins aren't paid for, then Christ didn't die for them. It's as simple as that. It's very basic, right? If Christ died for them, then their sins are paid for. If Christ didn't die for them, then their sins are not paid for. It's as simple as that. It comes down to it has to be one or the other. You can't claim both, which is pretty much what they're doing. Okay? So second problem. If one needs to accept Jesus for the atonement to apply to them, then their accepting Jesus has become a work for them necessary for their salvation. Okay. What a limited atonement is saying is Jesus' death on the cross isn't enough to save anyone by itself. 
The sinner has to add something to the atonement to make it apply to them. They have to add a decision to make it effective enough to save them. And that decision becomes a work required for salvation. But as you know, salvation is all of God, none of man, and no work can be required for salvation. Works can have no part of salvation. Any gospel that requires a work from Galatians 1 is a different gospel. And those who preach a different gospel, according to Galatians 1, are to be accursed. It is a different gospel. Works can have no part of salvation. And how do we know that again? We keep coming back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, you guys should all be able to say it with me at this point. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. We come back to Ephesians 2. Every doctrine we've gone over, Ephesians 2 supports it. The great verse that most of us learned as a child. Not of works, so that no one may boast. Works can have no part of salvation. You can't require a sinner to have a work necessary for salvation. Whether the work is simply believing or not. Okay, that was the second problem. Third, we've already covered in detail man's depravity and reviewed it again today. Man will, in his unredeemed state, always choose to reject God and he will always stay in rebellion against him. If there is a decision needed from the sinner to accept Jesus for salvation, then man on his own will never be saved. Unregenerate man will never make that decision. He can't. He is not capable of doing so, according to Romans 3. All the doctrines of grace hinge on a proper understanding of total depravity. The sinner is completely unable to make the decision to come to Christ on his own. Right? So if Jesus died for everybody, but for it to apply to you, you have to make a decision, then Jesus' atonement will never apply to you because you will never make that decision. Pretty simple. The only way you are able to make that decision is if God first chooses you, regenerates your heart, gives you a new heart, gives you a heart of flesh, and then irresistibly draws you to himself. And then you can make that decision. That's the only way. That's why all these doctrines hinge on a proper understanding of total depravity. You get total depravity right, and the rest all fall into place. Fourth, if Christ really did die for everyone, then what they're saying is that there are those for whom Christ atoned that will ultimately go to hell. You get that? If Christ died for everyone, then you're saying Christ died for people who will spend eternity in hell. Let's get scary. If Christ had paid the penalty for their sins, then what are they being punished in hell for? Someone can't be punished for the sins that have been paid for. This is the most obvious area where the argument that Christ died for everybody falls apart. Simply put, Christ can't have atoned for the sins of someone who spends eternity in hell. That makes a mockery of propitiation. And we'll cover that more in a little bit. God's wrath was satisfied by Christ's atonement on behalf of the elect. How can, Christ, how can God's wrath be satisfied 
for someone who goes to hell. Simply, it can't. Right? And because of those things, the atonement has to be limited to the elect. And it is God who limited it. But the term limited atonement here is a bit of a misnomer. The atonement is limited only in respect to who it is applied to. It is only applied to the elect. And that how is limited is not applied to the unbeliever. It is not limited in its power to save those to whom it has been applied to. This is why I like the term particular redemption. The atonement is unlimited in its power. It is unlimited in its effect. Unlimited in its effect. Only limited in its extent of who it's applied to. So in reality, it is those who claim unlimited atonement that limit the atonement. They're the ones who should be called limited atonement. Right? Do you understand why they're limiting it? They're limiting the atonement because they're saying that the atonement doesn't have the ability to save sinners on its own. Something has to be added to it. That is the decision made by the sinner. So in that way, they're limiting the atonement, making so it has to be added to. They're limiting its power. Um, They're limiting its effect. If Christ died for everyone and yet some still go to hell, then the atonement has to be limited. They have, in fact, limited the atonement by making it a potential atonement, a potential to save instead of an actual atonement. That's why John MacArthur calls this doctrine the doctrine of actual atonement. They have reduced Christ's work on the cross to having the potential to save somebody, but not actually providing salvation. Okay? So it's the ones who are claiming unlimited atonement who have limited the atonement. Because they're not saying that the atonement by itself has the power to save sinners. In addition to this, if Christ died for the sins of people who ultimately end up in hell, what would that mean for me and you? What does that mean for the believer? Think about that. If the atonement didn't have the power to save the unbeliever, then who says it has the power to save the believer? You see that? This is something I didn't catch before <laughs> that dawned on me while I was studying this. this that's serious. If you limit the power of the atonement to not save the unbeliever, who says that the atonement has the power to save the believer? You're saying my work is going to add something to my salvation? Really? If my salvation is dependent on me and my ability to make a decision and keep it, frankly, that's not a salvation I want. Right? You really want your salvation to be dependent on you and your ability to make a decision and you to keep that decision? That's scary. Again, this makes salvation dependent upon man and man's decision. It's it's bad. This error is serious. But we praise God that that's not true. We praise God that, I, I praise God that my salvation and my eternal security isn't up to me. Remember John 10. Remember, you should have your finger on it. I told you we're going to come back to John 10. Do you still have it open to John 10? 
John 10, verse 28. I'm going to read it to you again. Follow along. If you, hopefully you still have it open in your Bible. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It is the Father who keeps you. It is the Father who brings you in. It is the Father who applied the atonement to you. Right? It is Christ who died. Christ paid the penalty for your sins. His wrath, God's wrath, was appeased, and He holds you, and there is no longer any punishment for your sins. We praise God for that. So then the question comes from, okay, so if this doctrine of unlimited atonement is so bad, where did it come from? How did we get there? How did people get there? And I had a pastor once who said he believed in unlimited atonement. It was the one that he said he was a four-point Calvinist. And if you ask him why, he says, because the Bible clearly says that Jesus died for the whole world. That's why. So then my question becomes, oh, really? Where does it say that? Now, if you look at these some verses, and I'll give them to you here. I'll give them to you in shotgun format. It does appear at a first glance. Really, you have to really just glance at it. You can't study these verses for any longer and come to any other conclusion. But if you just glance at it at first, it does, on the surface, sometimes appear that Christ died for the whole world. At least that's what it, 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 it looks like they say very briefly. Okay? I'll give these to you. Um, out of the book of John here, I got four out of the book of John. John 1.29, On the next day he saw Jesus coming and said to him, this was John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 6.33, For the bread of God is that which comes down for heaven and gives life to the world. John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 1 Timothy 2.6 Who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. It says a ransom for all. 1 John 2, 1-2 Actually, turn there. Let's go there. We're going to spend some time in 1 John. We're going to use this verse to show how some people support it for unlimited atonement, and then we're going to look at it in detail and show how it says exactly the opposite. And then we're going to do that with some other verses too. We're going to look at some of these verses that people use to support this idea that Jesus died for the whole world and show how they don't actually say that. First John chapter 2, start right at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Oh. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, only but also for those of the whole world. See that? He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Plainly put, if Christ was the propitiation for every individual who ever lived, then every individual who ever lived would be going to heaven. Right? 
There's no other way to put it. You can't come to any other conclusion. Propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. Once you've appeased God's wrath, then there's no punishment in hell. Who's punishing the hell if it's not God? If God's wrath has been appeased, then His wrath has been appeased. There's no more punishment for sins once His wrath has been appeased. You can't have it. It's not possible. So this has to say something else, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. The word propitiation simply can't mean a potential to save. Like those who claim unlimited atonement say the atonement is a potential atonement that has to be accepted. Propitiation can't mean a potential atonement. It is the actual appeasing of God's wrath. It is the turning aside of God's wrath. The word propitiation means the actual satisfying of God's wrath. If God's wrath is really satisfied, there is no future punishment for sin. Propitiation can only apply to believers, those who have had their sins paid for in full and will spend eternity in heaven with Christ. There's no other way around it. So then what does the verse mean? Okay, What does it mean that Christ is a propitiation for the whole world? It will help to look at a few other verses that use similar language. I'll just blow through these fairly quickly. Okay. So here we have some other verses that use similar language to those verses we read that say the whole world. Okay, John 12, the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we are, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Speaking about Jesus. It says the whole world has gone after Jesus. Really? Think about that. Every singular individual who ever lived have just gone after Jesus in the wilderness to be baptized by him. Doesn't make any sense. Right? That obviously when you say, when the Pharisees said, look, the whole world has gone after him, they can't mean every single individual that ever lived. Right? So the term the whole world has to mean something else. Mark 1.5. It says all the region of Judea was going out to him. Really? All of them? Everybody in Judea went out to him? And it continues, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized with him in the Jordan River. Really? All the people of Jerusalem. Every last singular individual who lived in Jerusalem, that, they, they emptied the city. to all go out to be baptized all at once. No, it's obvious. That's not right. What they mean by all is all kinds of people, or all types of people. Charles Spurgeon wrote, the words word... The words world and all are used some seven or eight senses in Scripture. And it's very rarely that all means all persons taken individually. The words are generally used to signify that Christ has redeemed some of all sorts. Some Jews, some Gentiles, some rich, some poor. And God has not restricted his redemption to either Jew or Gentile. So what does 1 John 2 mean? Right? What does 1 John 2 mean when it says Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the whole world? Okay? It means that what John is saying here is that Christ is propitiation for some people from every part of the world. There's nothing here in 1 John 2 that has to mean propitiation applies to every single individual who ever lived. Okay? Let's look at it again. It says... He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for all those of the whole world. What if we, what if we rephrase that a little bit, and we just say, 
He is the propitiation for some from every part of the world. Or how about this? In our own terminology, it would be better to say he is the propitiation for people from all over the world. Right? That very easily could be translated that way. He is the propitiation for people from all over the world. doesn't mean every singular individual. Right? And we know that's true. Christ is the propitiation for, pe- for, for people from all over the world. Some people from all over the world will become believers. And what, how do we know that? We know that from Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation. Right? God, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for people from all over the world. That's simply what it means. In 1 John 4.10, later in the book of 1 John, that was chapter 2, in chapter 4, he clarifies this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The believers, the ones He's writing to, our sins. Not every single individual who ever lived. The only way you could say that Christ's atonement is unlimited and Christ's propitiation applies to every individual in the whole world, is if you are a universalist. That's the only way it would make any sense. You would have to believe that everyone will be saved and no one will ever go to hell. Because propitiation is the appeasing of God's wrath. Once God's wrath has been appeased, once the sins have been paid for, there is no more punishment for sins. We got that from Romans, right? We know that well from Romans. As we covered before, Scripture is clear. Not everyone will go to heaven. Go to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to look at this one. This is another verse that some people who claim unlimited atonement will go to to try to prove that Christ died for everyone. But we're actually going to see here, as we look at it, just like we did in 1 John 2, that it actually says the opposite. It says Christ really died for the believer, for the elect. 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 14 and 15. Cliff Montry, you have that first, or sorry, did I say first Corinthians? I'm in second. Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Okay, it says right here, Christ died for all, right? That means Christ died for every individual that ever lived. It says right here, one died for all. Is that what it says? Okay, if you read this and you say, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, if it was period and that was the end of the book, it might look that way. But that's not even the end of the sentence. One died for all, therefore all died And he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So who did he die for? He died for all who what? 
He died for all who live for Him. Do you see it? He died for all so that they who would no longer live for themselves, but who, but for Him who died. So He died for they who don't live for themselves, but who live for Him. The ones who have not lived for themselves, but live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. <coughs> Excuse me. So Christ died for all who live for Him. So all is defined right there. All is defined. The all is all who live for Him. Some of every tribe, some of every tongue. All, both Jew and Gentile. All who will live for Him is who He died for. Not for all, period. Not for all, period. That's the end of the verse. He died for all who will live for Him. Only. <laughs> Do you see it? It's very clear there in the verse. Look at it again. He died for all so that they would live... So He died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but live for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. He died for all who live for Him. The living for Him is a requirement for Him dying for you. For Him dying for them. Okay, the verse... <clears throat> the all isn't everyone who ever lived. The all is all who live for Christ. Right? He died for all who live for Him. Very clear. Okay? Now we're going to go back to John 10. Here, I still got... John chapter 10. We've already gone to John chapter 10 a couple times. Let me remind you of what we said and read in John chapter 10 before. As soon as I find it. John 10, it was, we were in 26 and 29. We're going to look at, we're going to start in verse 11 of John 10. But what it says later on is, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Right? Being a sheep was a requirement of believing. You had to first be the sheep. Once you were the sheep, then you were able to believe. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, it says in verse 28. He gives eternal life to the sheep and they will never perish. Right? Okay. Right. Not that what it says. It says you believe because you're a sheep. The sheep comes first. <laughs> That's right. So John chapter 10 here. We're going to go to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who did he die for? Everybody who ever lived, right? He died for the sheep. The sheep. It doesn't say, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep and the goats. He didn't die for the goats. He died for the sheep. How do you know you're a sheep? Because you believe. You have to be a sheep first, and then you believe. Right? He died for those who believe. Verse 14, jump down a few verses. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep and the goats. I lay down my life for the sheep, just for the sheep. The Father knows me, and I know the Father. He knows, Jesus knows His own. His own know Him. The sheep know the Father. The sheep know Him. And He lays down His life for the sheep. 
And he, what does he do for the sheep? Verse 26, or 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Jesus died for the sheep. They will never perish. It's very clear. Right? He lays down his life for the sheep. All right. Um, one more verse. Galatians 1. I mentioned Galatians 1 earlier. And actually, I didn't copy the whole part of Galatians 1, but I have time, so I'm going to cover a little more Galatians 1 than I planned. Galatians 1. Um, I have 3 through 5 written down in your notes, but here, let's... Um, we're gonna, I'm going to read through here, through verse 8. Starting in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. In verse 9, As we have said before, and I will say it again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. What is the gospel contrary to what he received? Okay, so let's ask, what is the gospel? According to Paul here in Galatians, what's the gospel he's referring to? Didn't he just tell you what it was? What's the gospel he told you it was? Go back to verse 3. Who gave himself for our sins so that... Why did he give himself for our sins? So that he might rescue us from the present age, the present evil age. Okay? The present evil age, according to the will of God the Father. To whom be the glory forevermore. So what's the Gospel? Okay? What's the Gospel he's talking about? Not the different Gospel, the right Gospel. The right Gospel. The Gospel he's talking about is Christ who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this world. The present evil age. Okay? The Gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's the Gospel. If you change that and you make it Jesus Christ died for the sins of everybody, you've now changed it. It's a different Gospel. And what does he say about the different Gospel? This is a serious error. I, you know, the more I looked at this this week, the more I went, wow, this is bad. Um, you look at it and you study it, not only is it very clear, but you realize how serious the error is on the other side. Right? Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty. He appeased God's wrath. He turned God's wrath away from us. And He paid it in full. Anything else is a different gospel. Um, we actually have a couple minutes left. 
which is great because I had something else in my note if Rachel would humor me. We don't usually do this. This is odd. I would like to sing a closing hymn for Sunday school <laughs> if we can do that. Is that all right? Hymn 667, you know it. We all know it, we all know it very well. Um, but this doctrine is taught in this hymn quite well. So in your Trinity hymnals, um, to hymn 667. You know, when you see this is a great end to these doctrines, these five doctrines. This is what this is all about. It is all about God's glory. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you elected us 
that you chose us. You irresistibly drew us in with your grace. You gave us a new heart, a heart of flesh, that we may turn from our sin, seek you and follow you all our days. That you hold us with your almighty, powerful hand and you've kept us sealed for our day of redemption. We thank you that Christ died on the cross for our sins. That he appeased your wrath. That he was the propitiation for us. That he bought and paid fully and whole the penalty for our sins. That there is nothing more for us to give. He paid it all. That there is no more punishment for the sins that He paid for. He paid it all. Lord, may we praise and glorify Your holy name. To You be the glory. Great things You have done. And we will love You forever for it. Praise be to Your name forevermore. Amen.